Hi, I'm Stephen Gregory Smith. And I'm Matt Connor. Places, everyone. It's time for The, the Connor, Connor and Smith Show! Thank you, Places. Thank you. Okay. Well, uh, tonight, we, <laughs> we have not uh, prepared a craft tonight. We're kind of not growing out of that, but uh, we're running out of paper, folks. Um, we, we did make these beautiful candles the night we talked to Marsha. Marsha Milgram Dodge, who is the director of our guest tonight in the Broadway revival of Ragtime. So, way to tie it in. Yeah, it all is full circle. Um, but I didn't want to do a craft and then talk to Donna Migliaccio because she would do it better. And I just don't like competition. She can do everything, ladies and gentlemen, everything. She gardens, she cooks, she bird watches, she fox feeds, she sings quite a bit. She blogs. She writes. She's She is a Doer. renaissance woman. Um, a mover and a shaker. Yes. And... So that's who we're talking to this evening, and we're gonna uh, we're gonna stay live for for the first little, for a little chunk. chunk, yeah. And then at some point we will say we got to go. If you want to learn more, go listen to the rest of the podcast because you know I, it'll be out on Saturday. Yeah, it'll sound like it's a trailer. Um, so it'll so, be out Saturday this coming Saturday. Yeah. So if you're listening to this on the podcast, it is Saturday or later when you gotten to it. So happy Saturday, everyone. Okay, so we're going to take a quick commercial break, and then we'll be right back. Hello to you. Hello, Donna Migliaccio. How are you, Stephen Gregory Smith? Uh, we're we're using our full names. Why don't you introduce yourself? <laughs> Hi, Matthew I am Matthew Connor. Jenny I know you're Connor. there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm named after the first book. You are. <laughs> Donna, how's it going? Oh, you know, recovering from the big thunderstorm that came through. Unfortunately, uh, didn't have too many branches down, but uh, I had to go out and uh, talk nice to my tomato plants that I put out. They're whimpering. So. Yeah, you know what? That's a, that's a good place to start with, Donna, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, so, of course, I'm obsessed with everything that you do, which seems to be like a very long list of things that you are accomplished <laughs> at. And one of them is gardening. So well, I wouldn't call accomplished. I've, I've, all gardening is and I'm still very much in the experimental phase. So is there anything different from this year's garden from last year's? Are you experimenting with something like broccoli that you've never done before? Uh, I'm actually trying a few things this year. Last year, um, I never intended to have all the time that I had. Um, I had two shows that went away because of COVID. Uh, so I just sort of threw myself at gardening. I didn't plan. And I'm not usually good about planning the garden. I just want to sort of, you know, be creative with it. And this year, I figured I probably the soonest that I would be working again would be the fall. So I that gave me time to sit there and go, okay, I'll do it this way. I'll do it this way. And, you know, I can start my seeds at this point. Um, and I just, I did a lot more researching and a lot more, a lot less seed pants gardening. 
You know, I was talking to Barbara Bear one day on the phone, and we both agreed that we did not ever want to be friends with anyone who didn't understand what it was like to enjoy a fresh tomato sandwich. Oh, it's, I wait for the first tomato of the year. Uh, and, you know, if you can pick it and then take it and give it a quick wash and just slice it nice and fat with a slather of mayonnaise and uh, salt and pepper on a good piece of bread. Mm -mm, mm -mm, mm -mm. Yeah, there's nothing like it. <laughs> Steven's face is like, well, I don't know if I agree. That's why we're not friends. <laughs> yeah, we, we married each other. We're not really friendly, though, you know? Yeah, well, that's, I know how you eat, Steven. I, you know... What? <laughs> I'm, I'm still alive, Donna. You are, you are, you are. <laughs> so, Donna, uh, take us on your journey from, let's say, uh, what, what what has been your journey from uh, all over the country? Where did you go to school? Okay, uh, I was born in Germany. I'm the child of an army family. I am the fourth of seven children. Um, so I'm smack in the middle, a quintessential middle child. Um, so we never settled any place for about a year and a half until I hit my sixth grade year. And then we were fortunate enough to be stationed in one place for, a, uh, I think it was my sixth grade year, middle of my sixth grade year, we moved there, uh, Fort Kentucky. And we stayed there until the week after I graduated from high school. Uh, and we moved from there to Hawaii, and that's where I went to school. I have a BA in journalism from the University of Hawaii, and I never intended to be an actress. <laughs> oh wow! So how did you did, how did you fall into that? Well, it was always something that I did for fun. I had done community theater when I was a kid, uh, when I was a teenager, and I did community theater when I was in college, but I, I just didn't have the time to do much. Um, and then when I moved to the D.C. area after I graduated, I felt like my life had just become working home, working home, working home. I, you know, I didn't have anything to kind of freshen my outlook. And um, one of the community theaters in the area, uh, the Fairlington Players, now known as Dominion Stage, were about to put on a production of Grease. And so I thought, well, why not audition for Grease and see what happens? And I was cast as Betty Rizzo, and uh, I did community theater for four or five years. I sat on the board. I you know, wrote the company newsletter. I, I, I dived in headfirst and basically got swallowed. Um, and then I got uh, by a producer and he gave me my first break uh, in professional theater. So I sort of spent three years kind of one foot in both worlds and finally made the break to uh, professional theater entirely. What was the break, if you don't mind saying? Uh, the break was that uh, I, the, well, the first show, the first professional show that I did was a show called um, Jerry's Girls which we did at the Omni Georgetown Hotel. And it didn't run very long, ran a couple of weekends. And what I mostly remember about it is that our closing weekend was the weekend of the first Gay Pride March in D.C. And that was the only time we had a sold-out house. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. And it was amazing walking outside uh, that weekend and seeing all 
the people who were there for the march out on the balconies of all the hotel looking I was just it was it was a real happening and, and and so it was sort of exciting to be a small small part of it and from there I went on to the Miss Foggy Bottom and Friends show which I did off and on for about two and a half years I was still holding down a full-time job at the time so I was doing that show I think it was Thursday Friday and Saturday evenings um so you know it was something that I could handle and still keep a full-time job and then uh, I'd gotten to know Eric Schaefer in the interim. Uh, we'd worked together in community theater, and we felt like there was a a place for a professional theater company in Northern Virginia. And we started Signature Theater, and I guess I sort of never looked back from that. Well, no, you you definitely haven't because you have you have um, gotten up there with the, the Broadways. With <laughs> the Broadway, yeah, the Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we talked to Marsha Milgram Dodge a week ago. Oh, um, yes, yes, we 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 discussed all the ragtime, um, and and just the uh, the interesting process of going from Kennedy Center to Broadway and the issues with the set and different things. Oh yeah, um, the um, the set was so enormous and. It was also, we learned doing production at the Eisenhower Theater at the Kennedy Center that it really needed, instead of being sort of, it was a multi-level set that was built square inside the proscenium. And we learned that for sightline reasons, it had to end up being more trapezoidal so people could see. So that was interesting. Yes, and gosh, you, you played Emma Goldman. Correct. Did you have a moment stage right on the very top tier? Stage right in the very top tier? Um, I did at the Eisenhower. Uh, I came down a level when we did it on Broadway. But it's funny. I can remember that right now. Yeah, it was uh, He Wanted to Say. Mm -hmm. Wow. Which uh, was interesting because I loved that song. And the problem was when we took the show to uh, to New York, it was just too darn long. It was too darn long what had been produced originally. And so uh, Lynn Ahrens and, and Stephen Flaherty were taking little nips and tucks every place they could. And one of the things that ended up happening is both my numbers had chunks cut from them. So uh, I, I, I remember like, oh dear, I don't have very much of a song here anymore, but it was okay. Some people's numbers or scenes got, uh, the historicals really took a hit. Uh, not so much the two women, the, the woman that played uh, Savannah Wise, who played Evelyn Nesbitt. She and I did okay, but um, the big Booker T. Washington speech was cut. There was a lot of things that were cut just to, to get back 30 seconds, to get back a minute, because the problem was the show would go into overtime and that is not a joke with uh union houses at the prices yeah i mean i can imagine the applause would probably have like lengthened the show considerably as well <laughs> well it's it's that opening number never failed to like make my uh, goosebumps pop up on me and uh, i loved he wanted to say, I love the way that Marsha staged it. 
uh, it was just rather than sort of having the ensemble there as just an ensemble of people, we were there in character. And she said something about she felt that it was important that the all these characters are there bear witness to this. And uh, I'm sorry, I said to say I meant new music. Uh-huh. Um, and new music is just such a stunning number anyway, and it was always make me well up. Just so beautiful. That opening number, like it's 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 hard to think of opening. So I think of like tradition. Uh-huh. Um, I think of. I mean, there's just, gosh, there's those c- certain opening numbers that are just like not only do they very um, dexterously create the world um, and the characters, but they they, God, that number is just such a powerhouse i know it just builds and builds and builds and builds um and it's just it's an amazing number to do and every single night without fail it would be met with a roar from the audience so it's like the titanic opening it's like of that same kind of ilk um donna did the revival of ragtime have a limited run in new york or was it an open-ended run it was an open-ended run so for those of us, uh, so for if anyone's listening about what all that means, what is it, how do you transfer your life as Donna to New York when you don't have housing up there? Like, do you have to find housing? Does your manager find housing? Uh, that is something that's on you. When New Yorkers come to DC to work under the rules, equity, the actors equity union rules, they must be housed. But New York is what's called a point of organization city. There are two others. I think Chicago is one, and I'm not certain what the other one is. But if you are cast in a show outside any of those point of organization cities, you must be housed or they must give you a per diem. But if you're going to New York or to Chicago or something like that, they don't have to house you. So uh, going to New York and finding a sub and all that is, you're talking for somebody that doesn't live there, you know, all the time, it's a major outlay. Uh, I mean, I was doing ragtime, still paying a mortgage at home and all that. Um, and I despise the subway and it's got, it's just gotten worse and worse there. So I try to live in Midtown and I pay Midtown prices when I'm, I'm working there. Uh, I was fortunate to find nice sublets both times that uh, I worked in New York, but the not knowing the open end part of the run, not knowing whether or not you're going to have to find another sublet when your lease runs out or, you know, what you're going to do, that uncertainty really plays into the stress of doing the show in New York. Mm-hmm. Cause it's enough like to get ready for the show itself without the added stress of, oh, and I have to find a new place to live. And right. then I have to find a way to get from that place to the theater and back. And yeah. how do I live? Like, where's where do I get my groceries? All that. It's yeah. all of those things without having your hand held very much. Uh, because most of the people that work on Broadway live in New York. I mean, that makes perfect sense. So there were, uh, for Ragtime, there were uh, three or four of us that came from D.C., uh, Dan Manning, Tracy Oliveira, um, and the children, um, and we had to kind of find our own way. And did you kind of stick together like a regional gang? Uh, not really. I mean, uh, for example, I lived in Midtown. 
I lived probably a six block walk from the theater. Uh, and I was willing to pay extra so I did not have the stress of a commute. Dan, on the other hand, lived in Brooklyn. I think Tracy started out in Brooklyn and moved to Hell's Kitchen. I don't remember exactly. But, yeah, it was a, a constant thing. And I remember, you know, you could look out at the audience and go, okay, we're playing to a half-empty house. How much longer can we do this uh, with, with the show not making its nut? Um, and, you know, and... And it was like, are we going to close or are we not? Because my lease was going to be up at the end of the year. And in fact, the, the woman that was on, the, that was renting, the, the, the lease was in her name, wanted to come back a week early so she could clear it out because she was moving elsewhere that was going to be less expensive. She's like, you want to take over the lease? It's like, no, I don't think I want a year lease because I don't think this show has got more than a month left. But for that like couple of week period, I had to find another place to live. So there was uh, a couple of guys that were from Brazil that lived over on 10th Avenue uh, that were going home for uh, Carnival. And so I took over their place and there was like one week where I actually had two apartments in New York. So it's like, okay, family, now's the time. So it's uh like, okay, you come up and you stay on the place that's on, uh, I think it was 53rd between 8th and 9th. And I'll stay on in the loft on 10th Avenue. <laughs> it worked out, but it was weird. <laughs> so that was that was your first uh, Broadway foray, but not your last. Not my last. So do you think that your involvement with Ragtime probably helped you get in the door for the second gig? I don't know. Um, I think what happened with the second gig, which was Warpaint, um, was that I came in to audition, and my range is Patti Lapone's range. Uh, they're almost exactly the same. And I don't sound dissimilar to her. Uh, and other than the height differential, I don't look dissimilar. So it was, um, yeah, I was... I was one of those auditions where it was sort of like, I remember the piece was really difficult that I had to learn for the audition. And uh, I had just, I was working on your production of Silver Bells when I was getting ready to go up and do that audition. And I just remember rehearsing it in the car every chance I got driving to and from the theater and getting up there. And I had brought my book just in case they needed to hear anything else. But uh, they were, I think kind of, impressed that I was able to tackle this number, which was um, the big 11 o'clock number that uh, uh, Patty had in the show, which uh, is called uh, Forever Beautiful. And it's this weird sort of violesque um, piece that uh, goes, uh, my dolly dear, that night's so real. She's talking about all of her paintings. It's uh, uh, And it was just, it had this weird beat to it and everything but uh, yeah I, I learned it <laughs> and uh, walked away from it going I think I just nailed this <laughs> and I don't quite know how I feel about this because I I don't understudy very often um, and part of the the gig was not just covering Patty but also covering three additional women in the ensemble oh. so yeah and I had never swung a show in my life, and I never want to do it again. 
It was one of the hardest things I've ever done. I have so much respect for swings. And I just, I don't think I was a very good swing. I was a good cover for Patty, but I don't think I was a very good swing. Now, were they still kind of working on the show when you oh, yeah. were hurt? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it had had a tryout in Chicago at the Goodman. Um, and they needed to cut it down. It was too long. Um, so a lot of the ensemble members who'd had little specialties here and there, they those were the first to go. All those were getting snipped, which was, for me, a great relief because it was one less thing I had to learn. Um, but the ladies... Uh, Patty Lapone and Christine Ebersole's numbers both pretty much stayed intact. Um, I've swung three different shows. God love you. And I covering at least at least five people. Um, so yeah, that's that's it's I had I'm sure you had your own system. I had different notebooks, um, <clears throat> Bibles for each that I would just kind of keep, what, what was your kind of system to kind of keep it separated and, you know, in your brain? I had my main script, but I had four different colored highlighters and I had four different colors of post-it notes. And then I had small notebooks for each of the ensemble tracks that I covered, but I never, and I think this is one of the things that I, I came away from the experience going swing work really needs to be done by people with a dance background. I really believe that because it needs to be about learning how to go from point A to point B to point C without questioning why you're doing it or needing motivation. It's just what you do. It's part of the dance that you do. And I'm not a dancer. And so for me, it was like, well, why is this character going in this direction? It wasn't being all actory. It was just like I needed a motivation. And very much about, you know, the numbers on the stage. You had to land at this place. You had to turn on this beat. And it was just an awful lot. Plus, the, the role of Helena Rubenstein is a monster. Uh, I mean, those two women are almost never off the stage. And when they are off the stage, it's just long enough to change costumes. Yeah. And and that was a shorter run, right? No, that was a long run. Um the I went up there in January of 2017, and I was done in late November, I think it was, mid-November of that year. Um, so, yeah, I was up there for, for almost a year, which with ragtime, I think it was four months. Okay, okay. Wow. Um, how did that feel? Was that, were you just going out of your mind, like... It was a stressful run. Um, I mean, part of the problem was Patty Lapone really needed to have hip surgery. She needed to have a hip replacement. And God, she's game. I mean, she would come in night after night, clearly in a lot of pain, and go through that show and do that show. And, and I think she made a couple of, of they, they made toward the end of the run, they did things to change her staging a little bit so she didn't have to walk as much or get up and down. I think getting up and down for her was what was difficult. She could walk all day and she, you would never know from hearing her sing that there was an issue, but the limp became more pronounced, which a lot of people thought, oh, well, that's just, you know, it's a character choice. She's limping um, because, the character's getting older as the show goes on. 
No, she was limping because she was in agony. And um, I think I went on for her nine times. And the first time that I went on, we had barely, I mean, I think we were a week away from our, we had opened and it was a week later. Um, And she, there had been a respiratory thing going around the cast as tends to happen in a cast. And she came down with it and had no voice. And it was right before a two show day. And so I got a call. I'm puttering around my apartment about 1030. And I get a, a, a text from the stage manager saying, heads up, Patty is probably not going to be able to go on this afternoon. What do you need? And I said, besides CPR, um, I need a little time on the set because I had not I, I, our, we had just started doing understudy rehearsal and we'd been very focused on the ensemble tracks. Um, so particularly the second act, I had not even walked the set uh, in the role of Rubenstein. And so it was, it, I, I had to come in, I had to do, I, I think I got there at noon for a, a, a two o'clock show and it has to have been earlier, I guess, but maybe it was a three o'clock show. I don't remember, but um it was basically, first of all, was just a half hour, 45 minutes of getting me in and out of costumes because they had not yet completed my understudy costume plot. Um, and I couldn't wear the same clothes as Patty because I'm a good five, six inches taller than her. Um, so I spent a lot of time with Catherine Zuber, the costumer, and with Lyle, uh, Patty's um, uh, dresser. And they got me in and out of stuff and decided what was going to work and what was not. And then I, I grabbed a few minutes to walk through uh, Forever Beautiful, which I'd never done on the set. Um, and a couple other scenes, which is like just walking through them without the set, without anything. And then I had to get in the costume and go. So uh, I had people running lines with me right up to the last minute. Uh, and it was absolutely hair raising when I went on. And I was so grateful that I have to say that, um, the stage manager asked me as you know, we were getting ready to go to places. He said, is there anything else, any other questions you have? And I said, yes, Patty normally has the final bow. Ask Christine if she would like to have the final bow, you know, and, and he said, Oh yeah, what a good idea. Okay. And he went and asked her and she came back and he said, no, Christine says you take the final bow. That's the way it's staged. Oh, so I just, and, and I adored Christine. She and Doug Sills and John Dossett kind of held my hand all through the first couple of performances that I did. And they were so supportive and so great to me. And Christine in particular, I mean, she's breathtakingly beautiful. And you don't realize that till you're on stage with her up close. And the two characters don't meet. Elizabeth Arden and Helena Rubinstein don't really meet eye to eye until the very end of the show. So, Sitting down across from her, I had a complete fangirl meltdown. It was just, she took my breath away because she was just luminous. Um, so you, <laughs> how, how does it feel, Donna, to take the last bow in, in a Broadway musical? Humbling. Yeah. It was humbling. Uh, and the audience was lovely. Every time I went on, the audience was lovely. You know, you... You try not to listen to any of the like PA announcements. You don't want to hear the audience groan when they're told that Patty is not going to be going on uh, because a lot of people were there to see Patty LuPone. I mean, who wouldn't? And here's some schmo from 
Washington, D.C., <laughs> but they could not have been more welcoming to me. I'm sure it helped that it was a new show, too. Yeah, so they didn't know what to expect. It wasn't like <laughs> Gypsy, where, <No. laughs> where oh my gosh, yeah. I, I heard oh, going of, on for Bette Midler and Hello Dolly, you know. Right, right. I remember <clears throat> hearing from an insider uh, that she was having some issues and she couldn't wear her high heels because it was just too painful. And so they, they started doing things like announcing Patti LuPone has an injury and the audience would be like, oh, but she's going to do the show wearing tennis shoes. Yay! <laughs> um, yeah, I don't remember that. I know that she 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 wore flats. I, I might have. I mean, so much of that show is a blur to me. And particularly toward the end where I just never knew. Uh, I got where instead of coming in a half hour, I'd come in at one hour just uh, just to see what was going on. And I remember one day I had literally just walked in the lobby door and I got a text from the stage manager basically putting me on notice that I might be on. So they said, you know, and, and I could as I passed by Patty's dressing room, I could hear her inside and she was very upset because she hated not being able to go on mm -hmm. so i you know walked up the five mm -hmm. flights to the ensemble ladies dressing room which is where i camped out and just you know started getting into my beat putting my hair in pen curls and putting the makeup on and uh, and then i sat there uh until intermission <laughs> with the makeup and the the hair and all that and finally stage management said yeah you can probably get out of all that she's good so I just never knew. Well, it's, I mean, hearing some of these stories, Donna, I have to tell you, my stomach like starts going in knots because I yeah. know that I know the feeling. Yeah. And oh my gosh, it's so, it's not thankless. That's not the right word, but it's, it's it, your insurance, you know? Yeah. And, yep. and my goodness, the times that I would have to go on or, or, Ugh. Oh, I just, remember you going on in Silver Bells for yes, Naomi, that, Naomi Jacobson. That was actually so, yeah. God, yeah. I wish I would have recorded that damn night. <laughs> no, oh, it my worked. God. It worked I out. blocked that out. Now, no, you were, how many performances did you do? You did a couple, didn't you? I did two. I did uh -huh. two. Um, okay, well, that's a natural uh, transition to Silver Bells. To Silver Bells. <laughs> Do you want to hear my quick understudy um, story? Yeah. Okay. My first professional job, Signature Theater. We were doing a funny thing happening with Ray form. I'm covering Sean McLaughlin and three Proteans. They offered me the, the understudy position or the, the job. And I said, oh, my God, I have to say yes. But what Signature didn't know is I was doing a show in Middleburg with Tom Schweitzer. And every <laughs> night I would call the stage manager, Carrie or Jess or whoever it was at the time. I would call in a half hour already in my costume for another show. I never had to go on, but immediately <laughs> immediately when the show in Middleburg closed, I went into form like 17 times. Yep. I remember that. Oh, that, I mean, that, that show was crazy because I, what happened was that uh, Floyd got sick and then it sort of dominoed up, as I recall. And I was playing Hysterium and Buzz right. was playing... Um, Buzz Morrow took over for uh, to play Pseudolus. 
And yeah, so it was dominoes, tick, 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 tick. That was the one thing that I expected with war paint was I thought that because I was not involved with the Chicago tryout, I figured that there were onstage and offstage covers for the show. So the onstage covers were members of the ensemble uh, who were also covering one of the leads. The offstage covers were just, you know, understudies. And I had assumed foolishly that I would probably never go on if Patty by some chance went out that her onstage cover who had been in the show much longer than I was, was going to go on. But apparently that's not the way they do things on the Broadway, or at least with this production, they would prefer to put the offstage cover on because that way you don't have that domino effect. Ah, You know, you don't have five people going on in unfamiliar tracks. You just have one person. Oh my goodness. It's shove with love. We always say. Yep. Yep. That's exactly what it was. Oh my God. Uh, Yeah. That's, that's, that's probably the last time I had to do that with silver bells. Oh my gosh. Okay. So silver bells. Um, (laughs) We silver bells had the strangest journey. Um, It was, Oh, what? Oh, you, you, he, Matt got some breaking news. Sorry. Um, So, Silver Bells started, why don't you tell the, you know it better than me. I kind of came in. You mean from the beginning? Well, just briefly. Don't let's write a book. Or well, anything. I can talk. <laughs> okay. I was invited to Eric Schaefer's house for a, like a, a meeting. It was, it was during the day. Now, did you know, do you know Sandy, um, Donna, the, the uh, woman who kind of ha- had the original idea? I do not. I think that they might have showed up at one point during the process, but I didn't know them from Adam. So her Sandra Johnson and Eric evidently worked together on one of Eric's day jobs at some point. And we get, we get to Eric's house and she hands out pamphlets to all of these people in the room and basically wants to pitch this idea called senior moments, a TV show about older people dealing with technology. The, the, um, it basically boiled down to the the room was th- basically said you know I don't think I think by the time this show is written technology is going to already you know be changed and we'll just have to keep rewriting the show. Yeah. Um, Eric somehow said, "Oh, Doris is here. Why don't we turn this into a musical?" <laughs> uh, next thing you know, we're writing a musical with someone else's idea. Eventually, Allie came on board, and it, it just wasn't working. And uh, this is the true story, whether anyone wants to believe it or not. I eventually said, we need to turn this into a Christmas show. Then that turned into Silver Bells and us sort of basically morphing that show into what it ended up being. And I think the challenging um, part about that show was that it was going through so many different ideas from Sandy's first idea to my idea to then what it what it ended up being its signature. Yeah, there were a lot of fingers in that pot. Yeah. Yes. And I remember I mean, we had a couple workshops, but um I remember when we were in rehearsal was it rehearsal or was it a work I it's we had so much I can't really remember. <laughs> But I remember changing Christmas balls into mistletoe during a lunch break. Yeah, um, I vaguely remember that. I think that was that was during 
rehearsal. And I want to say fairly late into the process because yeah. Christmas balls just wasn't landing. Yeah. Um, but mistletoe did. Yeah. And I, I look back on that and I remember I felt like I ran a marathon. Me and Warren basically went into the other room and were like, okay, triple it. Uh, what can it be? You know, and somehow we just basically saved the song uh, and concept for that number. Um, but God, that was stressful. <laughs> a lot of stress. But it, it ended up turning out, I, pre I think, pretty decent for a first run, you know. Yeah, um, no, I'm... I thoroughly enjoyed doing the show. It was a lot of fun. It was a good company. I loved doing it in that space with a single piano. And it sold really well, which was kind of the knockout part of it. People really enjoyed it. Um, I remember during uh, one of the workshops fussing about the fact that uh, the Orlean character that I played, who dies in the middle of the show, I said, we never you know, really see what's driving her. Um, you know, about trying to put on this Christmas pageant. And I remember going back and forth. And I think the cookie number, uh, we added the moonshine in later. And uh, I said, I was talking to you about how I needed her to be motivated. And was she always struck by lightning? Or did we I, add that? I think that was a fairly late addition. Yeah, well, I because I remember during that workshop, telling you, you know, there needs to be something where she is telling God that she wants inspiration. Strike me, strike me, Lord, strike me. And so you literally wrote a number where she's struck by lightning at the end. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember my mother saying, even your Christmas show starts with a coffin. <laughs> yeah, that was, um, I, that was a first for me. And I thought this is going to be so weird laying in there because people were like, don't you feel a little claustrophobic? And some people were absolutely certain that I was not lying in that coffin all through the first 10, 15 minutes of the show with the lid closed. Um, I mean, they said, oh, you know, there's got to be like an escape hatch in the back. I said, no, I get into it at the top of the show in the blackout and I don't come out until I finally pop up. So I would sit in there and it was a relatively comfortable coffin and I'm not claustrophobic. <laughs> I do remember when I had a cold during the run that I had to have water to sip in there and, and I had uh, Ricola's Ricola's uh, to suck on. So I'd sit back there, you know, lay in a coffin and suck on a cough drop. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're better than I am because that would have freaked me out. Well, now, I think the only part of it that freaked me out was the coffin lid was so darn heavy that when I was the first supposed to pop out of it, when we were actually on set doing it, I couldn't lift the lid. So I was literally stuck in there. Um, and it was like, okay, someone's got to get me out of here. I can't do that. And they were trying to figure out because it became part of the actual deck, you know, the set, um, it had to be sturdy enough for people to walk across because it would lower into the floor. And I finally said, well, you know, why can't you make a half coffin lid? Like they, you know, when they have for viewings, they, they, they don't have the whole coffin lid. Sometimes they just have the top half. So that's what we ended up doing. That I could lift, but it was heavy. Oh, I bet. You know, I think it's so interesting. People who don't do theater, and I'm not trying to like say that, you know, um, 
but people don't do theater, don't really understand that you have to be an athlete to be in theater. You have to be uh, brave to be in theater. Like there's so many, I'm sure you could write uh, a very long list about crazy crap that you had to do during a show. Oh, you yeah. know, like, you know, did you have to sometimes eat things during a show? <laughs> oh, yeah. I despise eating on stage because, you know, eating or drinking anything on stage, the chances of you, you know, inhaling it are very good. And I've done that. I've coughed on stage and, you know, gotten hung up. And uh, we've all done that. I, I mean, I've I set a purse on fire <laughs> accidentally during a show. Um, and I put my foot through a plastic uh, folding chair. Um, early in my career and could not get it off and had to hop upstage and kick off my shoe and pry my foot out. Um, yeah, there's there's been lots and lots of, there are so many ways to make an absolute ass of yourself on stage in front of hundreds of people. Um, especially back at the garage. <laughs> I remember, first of all, the first time I saw... I saw you in uh, Sweeney Todd uh -huh. at, at the garage um, and was like your biggest fan. Um, and then I saw you in Sideshow as the fortune teller. Uh -huh. And I remember like yelling out loud after you hit that high note in the devil, you know, like, oh, my God. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> the no, don't, no, don't, no. Devil. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I don't um, think anybody thought I could do it. It's like, watch me. <laughs> oh, oh, you did it. Yeah. You did it. Um, I love doing stuff like that. In the garage, you were very much a den mother figure, especially <laughs> to the newbies. Um, and you would tell people, you know, backstage, hand at the level of your eye. It's a Phantom of the Opera reference, but it was also the, the low-hanging um, set braces would frequently be you know head bumpers for people oh, yeah, yeah I, when we did that production of Sweeney Todd the guy that played Toby knocked himself out one night um he was running off stage and forgot to duck and uh because we had multiple levels we and that was the garage just didn't have that high a ceiling so for the multiple levels, we had to lower the, the, the lintels. And I, I'd swatted my head once in rehearsal and learned from it. But I guess in the heat of the moment when he runs off screaming, he forgot to duck. And he smacked himself in the forehead and sort of slid off stage and came to with like the stage manager hanging over him. And he you know, got back up and, and did his thing. So, oh, boy. <laughs> craziness. Um, we, we've all done it. Yep, we've all done it. We've all, I mean, there are multiple ways to hurt yourself. Uh, I remember coming off stage once after doing, uh, when we were doing Pacific Overtures, which I almost never got off stage in that show. It was the one time in the show that I was a able to actually go into the dressing room and sit down for a minute or two. And Tom Simpson was sitting there and he was just, blood was spurting from his toe. And uh, he looked at me and he pointed at his foot and went, the stubbing of the toe. <laughs> oh, because we were all barefoot. Everybody was barefoot in that show. Oh, what a nightmare. Yes, yeah, I remember yeah. that. You remember how our feet were filthy all the time. Ugh. But by the end of the run, we had, I guess, our, our, our bare sweaty feet had picked up all the dirt. So instead of being black at the end of the show, it was, it was just pale gray. Oh, God. Ugh. Yeah. 
Wow. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 I recall those days fondly in the garage. Um, you know, we had to use our imaginations and really make magic. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. With a limited, uh, <laughs> limited possibilities, you know? Yes. But that's but, what made it so miraculous. You know, we were on Broadway and doing a show that is literally millions and millions and millions of dollars on stage, and you see it. And so when that doesn't work, it's like, well, what a waste. But when you're, you're basically producing filet mignon on a chicken salad budget, that's when it's magical. So this, I want to, I don't want to take too much more of your time, but I do want to get to your writing career. Can you yes. give us a little, I know you have a journalism, uh, you know, degree. Right. But, but you've always kind of played at writing as long as I've known you. So can you tell us how you came to the Jumetta Stone uh, books? Um, what I had, the, the germ of the story came from a writing assignment in high school. And I played around with that all through college, you know, developed it and all that, and finally finished it when I moved to D.C. And I was I had not gotten into theater, I don't think, at that point. So, again, it was that thing about feeling like my life was just so two-dimensional, working home, working home. And I finished the book, and I went to, because there's no Internet back then, I went to the library and looked up the publisher's uh, I can't remember what it's called now. It's a publisher's uh, handbook or something like that. But it's basically a guide to what publishers are out there and what they take, what genres they do. And I picked out one. And I sent them my 180,000-word uh, manuscript. Actually, it's probably more like 250,000-word manuscript. And you sent them the whole freaking manuscript, you know, that you typed up by hand. Um, and you enclosed postage so they could send it back to you and all that. And the publisher kept the book for nine months before finally sending it back to me and saying, if you could cut out 30,000 words, send it back to us and, and you know, we'll, we'll talk from there. And I thought, 30,000 words, how am I going to do that? That's impossible. You know, you cut my stuff, it'll bleed. Um, so I think I cut 20,000 words and sent it back to her. And she said it needed more magic because it's fantasy. And I sent it back to, um, I think her name was Reva Kinsler at uh, Delray Books. And she fired fired it back to me within a month and said, basically, you didn't do what I told you to do. So good luck placing this elsewhere. Bye-bye. And I put it away for years. And I would get out and fiddle with it occasionally. And it was not until I was doing ragtime and had all this time on my hands uh, during the day when I wasn't performing, uh, you know, on my day off and just feeling like, you know, I gotta do something. And it was winter time. Uh, so it wasn't like you were gonna go out and like run a marathon or anything. So I started working on it again. And it took me another couple of years to get into what I thought was a pub- publishable shape. And uh, I was able to get an agent uh, who went through all the big ones uh, and we got nice feedback, but rejections, ultimately rejections. I mean, you know, the odds of you getting published are so astronomical um, that I felt grateful to at least finally get placed with a small publisher who within the year tanked. And so I was uh, 
four books into a five book um, series at that point. So I had to take a year off and basically learn how to, to self-publish because nobody wanted it then, you know, it was shop war, you know, nobody, no publisher wants to take a work that somebody else has already gotten all the first sales off of. So, um, yeah, so that was the journey to it. I am, I put out in 2019, I put out a prequel that I'd been working on and I am still working on the final book in the series, which unfortunately is, is just mammoth. And this past year was very hard for me to focus on it. It was just a rough year. Everything felt so cattywampus. Um, and I still haven't gotten up ahead of steam on it again. I plan to, but that's where it is. And and eventually we're going to shop this to Netflix and different places like that. <laughs> Your mouth to God's ears. But, well, they're uh, hungry for content. And this is a, this is very popular right now. This, no. this It has been in vogue for, you know, about a good what, six, seven years? Yeah, um, but the problem is, is that, okay, then people are going, well, it's too much like Game of Thrones or it's too much like this or it's too much like that. And so I don't know. You know, I, I would like to just finish it so I can say that it's done. Um, right. And I do need to finish. I think part of the reason why I'm balking about finishing is that I've lived with these characters for so long sure. that to finally close the box on that, it is just going to be very weird. Sure. Yeah. That's interesting how that happens. Um, I I feel, so we just wrote the, 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 one of the last shows we wrote was on air and it was about real life people. And I, I got to know the family of the real life people. And I, it kind of, it's hard for me to uh, let go of, <laughs> you know, the Conrad family because you just are so in love with them. Well, yeah, they become like family to you. Like, you know, that, and, when you're creating things for them to say, they they become like children. Um, you know, all these characters in this world that I've built are like, they're all kids to me, even the bad guys. They're, you know, and it's been so much fun exploring it. I really think that's where the acting background was helpful to me because I think I write pretty good dialogue and I think motivation, that it's clear why people do what they do. And that's the acting background. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting because people always want to pe put other people in boxes, right? Yep. You know, you, you're you an actor, so therefore that's what you do. You do. There's nothing else interesting about you. You have no other <laughs> passions. You can't direct. You're an actor. Actually, that usually makes a better director. Yeah, I um, agree. It, and it's, it's the same with writing. Well, I know what's going to sound good because I would know what I can sell on a stage and what I can't. Yeah. But it is, you know, people expect you to be in your role. It's like, you know, your favorite movie actor, you don't want to hear them talk about their rock band, you know. <laughs> Which is so, like, limiting and, and just, you know, that's why I, I admire the, like, Gwyneth Paltrow's and people who do other things that interest them and that, that they're passionate about, Um because yeah, you, there's human beings are so multifaceted, especially artists, you know. And the thing is, is it, I mean, like with the gardening, for me, all during last year, during uh, you know COVID, it was a creative outlet, and I, which I desperately needed at that point because I wasn't in a place where, in a headspace where I could write 
and there was no theatrical work. So it's like, I have to do something that I feel creative with. And the gardening was hugely helpful with that. Um, and I wouldn't call myself passionate about it, but uh, I, I, it's very satisfying. And, uh, you know, cooking to a degree and uh, things like that, you know, just some other outlet. Most, most actors that I know can do something else very well. They draw or uh, they're musicians or they write. Um, they have another outlet. So if you don't have one outlet functioning for you, you've got another one to turn to. And speaking of another one, can you touch briefly on um, Fantasy Fancies and the Occasional Fox? Oh, my newsletter, which I haven't put out one months and months and months and months. <laughs> it's just, it, I have to say the past year was just so difficult to want to to talk about anything. Everything felt, um, what is the word I'm looking for? Last year was just, it felt like, with the COVID and with the elections and everything, just like I, I didn't feel like talking lightly about things and I didn't want to talk about heavy stuff. So I said nothing. And sometimes saying nothing is a good practice, particularly for somebody like me, who's a big talker. Um, you know, sometimes you need to find the stillness. Um, and that was what sort of got me through it. It was like not, being paralyzed, but just being still um, and just trying to work through things myself without, I mean, get on Twitter and rage scroll. And I did that for a while. And I just realized that it was a tremendous drain on my energy. Um, and it made me angry all the time. And I didn't like being angry all the time. And, and and can you just kind of explain the fox quotient? Oh, well, the foxes. When I got home from war paint, I discovered that we had foxes that were coming into the yard on a regular basis. And my first gang of foxes that I had were very high personality foxes that were coming out during the day and uh, really surprising me with how often they were just hanging around the house. And so I, I ended up, I now have three wildlife cameras in my backyard and I've been studying them for the past four years. And I've had some very interesting personalities and I've gotten really attached to them. Um, I'm a little disturbed right now because my favorite fox has gone away. I don't know what happened to him. Uh, and I liked it mostly because I could, one fox looks much like another fox. Uh, they're all, you know, red with a brushy tail and, you know, <laughs> they they just sort of look the same. Fortunately, with the wildlife cameras, I'm able to get into closer detail. And I had this one fox that I called Hemsworth because he was so masculine. He was like the, the butchest fox in the world. And he was completely at home with being very masculine. He would stroll into the yard and uh, just sort of hang out and, and be completely you know, other foxes would come in and kind of quarrel with him and he wouldn't even bother with him. And I always knew it was him because he had one of his ears had a black tip to it and he stopped showing up a couple of months ago. And uh, I was talking to a neighbor the other day and she said, yeah, apparently there was somebody in the next cul-de-sac over who was snaring foxes. And yeah. it's like, Oh, please don't let Hemsworth, you know, let Hemsworth be someplace else and be happy. Don't, let some boob who illegally trapped him 
have done away with it. So, you know, it's, I, I'm very interested in, I get, I go out in the morning and I pull the, the SD cards out of my Fox cameras and, and I look and see who's been in the yard. Um, you know, what, what they were doing, how they were acting when they come in. And I find that fascinating. I, there's a, uh, I guess it's like a children's uh, short film called Stranger in the Woods. Uh-huh. And it's one of it's one of Matthew and I's like winter go to put on to go to sleep kind of movies because it's for children and it's uh-huh. cute and it's footage of animals in nature that they have then narrated. Oh, and I see a project like that happening for the Fox footage, you know, <laughs> Well, I make my little I make little videos occasionally called Your Daily Fox. Yep. That was one of the the skills that I taught myself this year was film editing uh, in a very basic way. But, you know, I score them and all that. And uh, I've learned how to to edit and to do fade in, fade out and stuff like that. And that's been very interesting. Um, Some some days more than others, there there there's something to report that's really interesting. But it's just. The dynamic between the animals is very interesting. I get deer in the yard and raccoons and squirrels and chipmunks and all that. And uh, so, yeah, just watching them, plus birds, because I bird watch as well. Um, So, yeah, nature watching is a huge outlet for me. And the footage is all black and white, right? Uh, The daytime footage is color, but I don't see them so much in the daytime anymore. My neighborhood has really gotten built up over the past five years. You can't swing a dead cat without hitting a new build. And we have a lot more children in the neighborhood, and a lot more dogs than we used to. So, you know, in 2018, when I started watching the foxes, it was a lot quieter. And now it's, it's much busier. I will get spells of having a lot of foxes at once, like in breeding season, and, um, which is in the fall into the winter. But then generally they kind of disperse and go their own ways in the once they've made it up and have their babies. So I, I have a whole new cast of characters come to fall. It's so interesting. Um, we have, you know, we live in Fairlington and it's right next to King Street. And we used to bird feed and we don't anymore because the bird seed would go all over the ground. And now we have these baby pugs and they they eat it and it's not great for them. Um, So, but we still get uh, the morning doves in our backyard who just kind of hang out there during the day. Mm -hmm. And of course the squirrels, which I wish we didn't have, um, but because they're always digging up my flowers and I'm like, what do you think you're going to find, mister? They, they're hardwired to dig. That's just what they do. And whenever I turn the garden to plant stuff, I know that they're going to come in right after me and dig it all up. So I have to put like little, you know, cloches and things like that over the, the new plants because they'll just dig them up for the hell of it because that's what they do. I, I used to really hate gray squirrels, but I've sort of come to a coexistence place with them. I have some that will come to the door and I hand feed them. And I gotta say, not wood, they're staying out of my plants so far. It's because you're feeding them. Maybe, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Coexist, coexist. That's right, that's right. Oh my gosh, there's so many times in life me and Stephen are walking and I'm like, I just wanna know right now, what I'm gonna call Donna right now, what what kind of bird is that? (laughs) 
I still have people that do that. Matt Anderson in Sweden will sometimes send me a photo and go, what is this? And it's like, it's a Swedish bird. I don't know. <laughs> I know where to find the information so I can usually ID it for him. That's, that's, uh, we do it on a quite regular basis. Or, <laughs> or we're like, what is this bird behavior that we're witnessing right now? But mainly, yeah. we're just obsessed with morning doves. I don't I know love why. the way they sound. They've got that oh, oh, kind of a, that little sigh for. A They're call. also like little characters, you know. They, because they you they're frequently with another one. Mm -hmm. Um, there's there's a little divot under our back gate, and there was for a while there was the same couple that would come through. They they'd walk straight under the gate. They duck their heads down and put them back up when they came under. <laughs> And we called them like Marge and Maury or something like that. They'd come in and just kind of like peck a little, see what was going on, hang out. They're just so funny. And then they make well, those beautiful. All critters have their own territories. And sometimes their ter territory is your yard. And so, yeah, I mean, I have my pair of foxes right now, Maud and Dude. It's just like they, they Dude right now will chase off any other foxes that come in which is unfortunate because they apparently didn't breed or if they had uh, kits, they didn't survive. So I was like, I was really hoping to have kits this spring, you know, to have some babies come in the yard, but uh, I just got modern dude. <laughs> hey, Dinah, during the pandemic, we were asked, we've been asking all of our guests, like, you know, uh, I, we hear people took up new languages and I know you learned how to edit and do stuff with film and stuff, video stuff. Is there anything that you went back and relearned as far as like, I'm going to bake the perfect sourdough bread. What else did you learn in the year? Uh, well, I learned how to make sausage roll, which was something that uh, my husband uh, is from Utica, New York, and, and it was a, a thing that they had. So I had to, we, and we spent a lot of time trying to make the perfect sausage roll. Um, it had to be full of sausage and cheese, but not so full that it would burst and go all over the place when you were baking. Uh, and it had to be the right size and it had to have the right mouthfeel, you know, the right mouthful of cheese and sausage and breading. Uh, so we spent some time doing that. And, uh, I got into making shrubs, which is a kind of uh, vinegar drink. Um, it's usually fruit and vinegar, macerated fruit uh, and vinegar. And then you you uh, pour club soda over it. It's delicious. So I was trying all different kinds of sub uh, shrubs. Um, but mostly it was a lot of it was about gardening and finding out that I knew enough about gardening to get myself in trouble. So that's why... I started when I realized, yeah, you're probably not going to be working until fall 2021 at the earliest. You might as well learn how to do this right. So I just, I, I, I spent a lot of time researching stuff, which is always good. And reading, lots of reading. Uh, did you binge anything on, on Netflix or otherwise that uh, you did would, would otherwise not watch? Uh, uh, all of the uh, Great British Baking Show. Yep. All of them. I, I like binge watch that and I miss it. I wish they'd come up with a new season. Uh, the crown, same thing. Yeah. Um, wish, you know, ready for a new season. So it's, uh, yeah, I, I don't spend a lot of time in front of the television set. Um, but I do, I, 
it was helpful to me, particularly the holidays, watching the baking show. It's like, and John would ask me, my husband would say, are you going to make that? And I would say, no, I, I just am interested in how they're doing this, you know, the mechanics of what they're doing. So then I was watching the master classes when they were showing how to do it the right way, not the way that the contestants had done it, but the right way. But a lot of the British uh, pastries and, and goodies and so forth are not appealing to me. They, they look like they'd be awfully sweet, but bread baking, love it. Okay. And, and lastly, the, uh, the we've asked this of all of our uh, guests. Um, you know, Maddie's producing Susan Derry's I Wish It So album. It's a holiday album. And we it's gotten us talking a lot about the power of a wish and what a wish really is. That's why uh -huh. I got distracted tonight because we hit our goal while we were talking. Yay! Oh, yay! Yay! Um, but we've been asking everybody... If you had one wish, whether it's for yourself, your family, the country, the world, whatever it is, what would your one wish be? Um, and this probably gets back to my books. The main character in my books, the driving force in his life, is that he really needs to be kind. He, he doesn't understand unkindness. Um, it's just a completely foreign concept to him. And even though circumstances sometimes make it difficult for him to do the right thing, it's something that he's always trying for, even if he doesn't succeed. And I really feel like whatever happened to doing the kind thing, you know, but why are we so mean to each other all the time? And I would just love for everybody to just, back up and go what would be the kind thing to do here right so to be more kind basically yeah to be a kinder person you know and i i just feel like that kind of stuff can proliferate you know that if someone's kind to you you pay it forward you're kind to somebody else and i just i don't understand why we have to be so angry all the time yeah, you know, it's it's almost like when we're younger, we're kind of reared to be kind and polite, but then somewhere along the way in growing up, you were also then encouraged to sort of stand up for yourself and not take any shit off of someone. And there's a happy medium between the two. Being kind doesn't necessarily mean that you're a pushover. You right. know, it just means that you're trying to do the right thing. And I feel like, in a way, the internet uh, has bred by people being able to be anonymous. Right. And by there not being any consequences for their actions, that they feel free to be rude, to be unkind. And it's, it's got to be the norm, which I don't understand. That's so true. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, all this shaming that happens on social media without really having to show your face. Yeah, I, I don't I don't like the shaming and I don't like the, the cancel culture. Um, I feel like it's too easy to just condemn somebody. And yeah, people do bad things and they they, they should they should be made to know that that's unacceptable behavior. But it's just, it's the mob mentality to fall on them and tear them limb from limb and leave nothing to basically destroy somebody. And yeah, some people, you know, 
deserve it. But it just, it's to me, it's like, you don't, you know, you don't need to take it that far. Right. Well, we love you very much. Yes. I adore the two of you. Hey, just a quick question. I'm, I'm going to put your website link in the description, but uh -huh. is, there a, is there a place you prefer people would buy your books from? Uh, currently, the only place that you can buy them from is Amazon. Okay. Well, then that's it's available on, uh, on Kindle and available in paperback. Okay, perfect. So and the first book is much cheaper than the rest, <laughs> just to get you hooked. That's right. That's you're you're a literary dealer. <laughs> well, I gotta say, you know, I was grateful to have Amazon when my publisher tagged, because I thought, you know, at least I can get them back out there. And one of these days, I'll, you know, I'll go wide and get in different places. But that was something that was supposed to happen this past year, and it takes a little money to do that, and I'm unemployed. So right. help a girl out. Buy a right. book. <laughs> Buy a book. Right. All right, Donna, we love you. Good to catch up. All right. Love you both. I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye. 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 So great to talk to Donna tonight. Thanks so much for coming on. Uh, we'll post her website and links to her book in the description. Um, in case you don't know who we are, check out www.connersmithmusicals.com. That's C-O-N-N-E-R-S-M-I-T-H, musicals.com. Uh, and please feel free to rate and review this podcast. Um, tomorrow's guest is world-acclaimed food stylist Lisa Tricaski. Um, a really interesting discussion on food styling and food photography, and she has worked with everyone. So um, please join us for that tomorrow. Yeah, all of our guests have been just completely very unique, and it's been really fascinating to kind of hear everybody's journey through creativity and life and professional and hobbies and yeah, it's been a great, um, Donna was a great guest to talk to and catch up about stuff. And and she's created a world. Like, think about that. She has created an entire world, like, like Game of Thrones, like Tolkien, like a whole mythology, like Stephen King. Like, it's, it's really incredible to even wrap your mind around. And I'm really hoping Netflix just knocks on our door any day now because they're looking for content and it's a great series. So anyway, as we always say, turn your heart into art. Good night, everybody.